Great to see you and welcome again to Christ the King. Let me pray before um, I um, guide us through God's word. Lord, may your Holy Spirit be with us as we consider this, your written word. There is nowhere else or better we can go to hear from you than the words of Holy Scripture. And we pray that as they are read and reflected upon, that you might speak to us. Indeed, as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last week of July of 2023, just about a month ago, I had one of those rare moments where you just kind of wonder whether a paradigm shift is taking place, to use an outworn expression, where your worldview is kind of challenged. I um, was looking at the news items and I noticed that there were some YouTube videos about a congressional hearing that took place in the United States on July the 26th. And normally congressional hearings are pretty boring, but this one promised to be the most amazing congressional hearing, perhaps in the history of the United States, because it pertained to what we now call uh, UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. And to my great surprise, the Congress was interviewing three people with seemingly impeccable credentials. Uh, one was a retired Navy commander. Uh, another one was a Navy pilot. And another one was a man named David Grush, who was a high-ranking official within uh, the government who had been appointed to investigate UAPs. And the story got rolling, at least in recent incarnation, when David Grush became a whistleblower. And he claimed that it was a well-kept secret within the United States administration that UFOs not only existed, but that the United States government had in its possession crash remains of UFOs, which contained non-biological, non-human biological remains. In other words, the bodies of alien pilots. And I just sort of, you know, just thought like, what part of this, like, is it April the 1st? What am I not, what am I not getting here? Uh, the penny needs to drop at some point. Um, but um, the uh, congressional hearing went through to its end. And these three people maintained with a high level of credibility based upon evidence that the United States government had recently released, which demonstrated, seemingly proved, that there were unidentified aerial phenomena that were tracked uh, for one place off the west coast of North America, off in the ocean uh, beyond San Diego, of an object that was at one moment at 80,000 feet, which is in space, at another moment it was at 20,000 feet, um, and they had videos of it and tracked it, uh, and it was described as being um, something like a, in the shape of a small pill. And I just kind of wanted to pinch myself because I was thinking, if this is true, there's an answer to a question that people have had for a whole long time. Is there extraterrestrial life? And if there is, our minds are kind of open to this whole new reality. Of course, I'm not here today to pronounce judgment on the deliberations of the uh, committee. I refer it to you and to, uh, to, to read. There was a very interesting interview with David Grish on a uh, channel called News Nation. 
And it's easy to find if you Google it. Uh, you can look for even a New York Times article that was written by an investigative journalist in the year 2017. Be that as it may, the point is that there was a moment, at least in my life, and I haven't thought, considered for a long time when I began to think of the world differently. Well, in our scripture passage today, there is a similar moment like that when the world is a different place if what we are reading is true. And of course, the true question for some of us might be a big if, because we're talking about somebody having risen from the dead, which sounds like it's in the category of crashed UFOs and non-human biological remains. But as we'll see, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and for the empty tomb after he was crucified just a few days previously um, is quite astounding. And scholar after scholar after scholar, including Jewish scholars and including agnostics, uh, are uh, virtually unanimous in saying that there is no better explanation for the empty tomb, the tomb that Jesus was known to have occupied, and which now no longer occupies than the resurrection of the dead. I have uh, uh, appended to your uh, notes uh, a summary of um, an article that I uh, read and, and uh, summarized by Dr. Neil Shevney, who has written uh, a book that I strongly uh, recommend called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. And in this article, he points to four reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' death and burial, the empty tomb, the belief of the apostles, and the conversion of Saul. And what rang new and somewhat fresh to me was uh, his comparison um, to Richard Dawkins. At the bottom of page four, he says, you don't need to turn to it, I'll just read it. He says, the event is psychologically surprising. That is the conversion of St. Paul. This is a man who was a zealous Jew, a Pharisee, who one day was persecuting the church, and the next day he was proclaiming the gospel. Shevney says, the event is psychologically surprising. It would have been as unexpected as Richard Dawkins, the vocal Oxford atheist, suddenly announcing that Jesus appeared to him in his study and that he was now a Christian. While we might think he was crazy, it would be hard to deny that something extraordinary had taken place to bring about such a complete reversal. In fact, the conversion of Paul is even more surprising than the hypothetical conversion of Dawkins, given that Paul embraced not a world religion with billions of followers, but at that time, a despised, persecuted religious sect with no power and few adherents. Therefore, anyone who doubts the resurrection must provide a plausible account of why Paul underwent such a dramatic conversion in such a short period of time. Friends, that's but one line of evidence in support of the resurrection of Jesus. And our passage today focuses upon the empty tomb. And I uh, just want to uh, begin by uh, reading parts of it again. We read it before, but... Um, it's in the nature of scripture to be read over and over again, and it doesn't get any better. Uh, the only way it can get better is if you come to the text with questions like an inquisitive child. Who, what, where, when, why? So we begin with the empty tomb and its significance. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the grave. Sounds like a straightforward statement, but it is kind of itself loaded with mystery. The word after isn't actually the word after, it's late on the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week. But no one can translate it that way because everybody knows that the Sabbath ended um, on um, Saturday evening. The Sabbath did not end at dawn on the first day of the week. So I, like everybody else, have kind of fudged it and said, after the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, or right on the heels of the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the grave. I think what Matthew might well be saying here, and we can't be sure, but I think there's good reason to believe that Matthew in his wording is signaling a number of changes. Right on the heels of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the most important day in uh, Jewish festivals. On a weekly basis, at least, there, was, there were others that were more important, but this one is part of their regular rhythm. And all through the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been defining and redefining the Sabbath. And so now Matthew says, right on the heels of the Sabbath. And it's as though he's saying, you know, folks, the Sabbath is really important, and it was important to us Jews, but something has happened right on the heels of it that's different. At dawn on the first day of the week. We saw last week, I think it was in the story of the crucifixion, that while Jesus was on the cross, there was great darkness that fell over the, uh, that part of the world at least. And Jesus in response to the disappearance of the sun said, my God, my God, why are you, have you forsaken me? And I pointed out that the presence of the sun in ancient Jewish custom was often a symbol of the presence of God. So now right on the heels of the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the grave. It's the first day of the week. It marks a different day. And there's a Jewish tradition that was inherited by Christians that the new world, the new creation, would take place on the eighth day. It would be the start of kind of a new world order. In Genesis chapter 1, the world is ordered according to a week, day 1 through day 7. But when it comes to a new era, that new era is going to begin on the eighth day of the week. After Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the grave. And what did they see? We read in verses 2 to 4 a description of what sounds a little bit like what we read in the story of the Olivet Discourse, of the moon being darkened and turning to blood and of there being kind of ominous cosmic events and I had mentioned that when we were looking at the story of the Olivet Discourse, that some of this was cyclical in nature, that you would see a hint of it here, and you'd be, you were supposed to identify, ah, that's an end times phenomenon, and maybe it's the absolute end time, or maybe it's just a, a sort of a harbinger of the end time. Matthew is saying here, on this, the first day of the week, on the heels of the Sabbath, at dawn, a ground shaking had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approaching rolled away the stone and sat upon it, a posture of triumph. Now the appearance of him was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards, those who had been appointed to guard the tomb, were told were so shaken up, it's the same word that's used of the earthquake, they were discombobulated just like the ground was from fear of him that they became like dead men. Hard to imagine what it would be like. Um, to return to the UFO motif, 
Uh, I think it was in June that in Las Vegas, somebody phoned 911 after there was a flash that was seen going through the sky. And he said, I know you're not going to believe this, but there are guys that are 10 feet tall wandering around in my backyard. And he sounded so calm. I thought, gosh, if I saw somebody 10 feet tall that kind of appeared out of a spaceship, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to speak. I find it hard to speak sometimes at the best of times. They became like a dead man. But in response, the angel said to the women, and this often is what happens when an angel appears to a saint, don't be afraid. You get that, it's okay. I'm not going to hurt you. And that's exactly what the angel says. Don't you be afraid. Don't you be afraid. It's emphasized in the original text. Those guys need to be afraid because I'm on the other side of them. But don't you be afraid because I know you're simply looking for your Savior. You're looking for Jesus. It's all right. You're simply looking for him, the crucified man. One commentator pointed out something that I thought was particularly interesting. The crucified man, the one who has been crucified. I was kind of taken aback to be reminded of the fact that, yes, although Jesus is risen from the dead, he's alive, he's still the man who has been crucified. When he rose from the dead, we could see the prints and the, the, uh, the holes in his hands, more likely his wrists, and in his ankles, and we could see a scar in his side. My friend, the risen Jesus is victorious. He is Lord. He is God. He is Prince of the world. But he's still the one, a man who has been crucified. And in his victory, he bears the marks of human suffering. It's as though uh, he's dressed in robes, but he's saying, I, I still remember. Been there, done it myself, and those marks are still with me. I'm not somebody who now that has been recognized as being great has forgotten your suffering, who has forgotten your pain. So we get to have our cake and eat it too. We have a risen Lord, but we have one who suffered and who died and who identifies with our pain. Even the pain of someone like a little James falling off a chair during a church service or even something so massive as the loss of a loved one from cancer. Now come the words that change the world. He is risen. Three words in English, but it's one word in the original. He has risen. Jesus has conquered death. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about earlier in Matthew where Jesus has done all of these miracles. Um, you know, he's made people see. He's brought other people back from the dead. Uh, he's restored... Um, hearing to the deaf. Um, he's, he's wounded people with all kinds of physical ailments. But friends, he died. And you would expect the show to be over at that point. That's how messianic movements die, as I told you. No one expected an individual to rise from the dead. The Jews believed in a mass resurrection on the last day. Nobody had the slightest idea that an individual was going to rise from the dead, even though Jesus tried to tell them that, which is why, of course, the disciples are not likely to have come and stolen the body or anything else. They weren't expecting this. He has conquered death. And because he has conquered death, we know that he has paid the penalty for our sins because death was the penalty for our rebellion against God. Someone had to pay it. Who better to pay it to God, as Anselm of Canterbury reminds us, than the God-man? He paid to God a God-sized um, penalty. 
for our sins. I don't know how this strikes you, but let me just share one kind of personal moment. My, my father passed away in the fall of 1999, and we knew he was going to go, and we had a bit of a vigil. You know, sometimes when you're in the hospital, uh, you have different family members who will be staying over in a, in, in a you know, they'll be sleeping on a cot. Hospitals are very accommodating now, or on the little bay window beside the bed, and it was on a Saturday evening, and I offered to take my turn, and we expected that my dad would be around for another three or four days. We knew he was slipping away. He died at a good age of 83 as a, a loving Christian dad and husband. Um, but it was still sad, of course, when he went. Well, I was lying on the ground, on the floor, on a cot uh, beside my dad when the nurse disturbed me. Uh, and she said, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know whether to awaken you. Uh, your dad passed away a few hours ago. And I said, well, thank you for telling me. I said, it's okay. I mean, I, I, uh, he was a Christian. I'm a Christian. Uh, we believe that, uh, that he's now with the Lord. And the nurse lit up. She was uh, a Canadian-African woman. And I could see this uh, Pentecostal lady emerge out of the suit of, a, of an RN. And she said, sir, it's Sunday morning. <laughs> and I could just feel that enthusiasm. She kind of said, you... You're somebody who understands what this is like. Sir, it's Sunday morning. And uh, that just brings a sense of joy. Folks, this is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. Who knows about those UAPs? I don't. But I do know that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead in the empty tomb is identifiable. It has been analyzed by the greatest of minds. One is a person such as Sir Norman Anderson, who was a judicial expert, uh, at Cambridge University and others, even um, even Jews, a, a Jewish scholar such as Geza Vermesh uh, will testify to the um, likelihood of the resurrection. And we know when it was, we know who it was, we know where the tomb was within a couple of hundred meters. Um, we can identify the place, the time. So even though this is not July 26, 2023, it still happened. That life-changing moment happened when the world is now a different place. And the problem with us is, is that we're so into everything new. You know, we won't watch a movie that even was won Academy Awards in the 90s. It's just, oh, so passe. This was 2,000 years ago. But it doesn't change the fact that then the world became a different place and still is. Because Jesus Christ changes the lives of people on an ongoing basis. That's why most of you are here today. Jesus has done something. The risen Jesus, the crucified man, has, through the power of the Holy Spirit, spoken to you and made a difference in your life. And now the women who went to the tomb are commissioned. They have good news to share. But first of all, they're invited to take a look. And I think this is really important. This is not some kind of a you know, I'm, I'm not some kind of a, um, we're not some kind of a wacky cult, and I, I'm, I, I couldn't be a charismatic leader of a wacky cult if I wanted to be. I just don't have that kind of charisma. But this is something that you're invited to investigate. He said, he's not here, for he has risen. And then the angel says, come, take a look at the place where he was lying. Then heading out soon, say to his disciples, he's risen from the dead. And look, he's going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. I love that. This comes up again when Jesus appears to them in verses 8 
to 10. I'll read it. And heading out immediately from the tomb with fear and immense joy, they ran to tell his disciples and looked, Jesus met them saying, greetings. Jesus didn't say anything out of the ordinary. He said, hi. And then he, they, they come up and grab onto his feet and worship him. What a wonderful combination of the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. They hung onto his feet, very human, and they worshiped him. The right thing to do. They worshiped the one who said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. Jesus didn't permit it because he knew he was God and so do we. But then he says to them again, don't be afraid. Again, in the sense that the angel had said that. Go and proclaim to my brothers. These are people that just left him. They abandoned him. Jesus is already proclaiming the message of forgiveness here when he says, proclaim to my brothers that they should leave for the Galilee and there they will see me. Jerusalem was filled with pretty bad memories. Days were a lot better in Galilee. The disciples were, the Galilee was the disciples and Jesus's happy place in a way. And Jesus ordained to meet them in that happy place because it had been a brutal week. But now the story has turned for the better. And they're going to have a reunion in the Galilee. We learn from the Gospel of John, Jesus is there cooking breakfast for them on the, on the, on the, uh, on the seashore. The glorious resurrection of Jesus is a sign of victory. It's a sign of cosmic victory. But we still have Jesus who says hi and who's interested in reunions with us and who has an angel who invites you to go and check it out. I know this sounds weird, but go ahead. Look at the evidence. And um, I've, I've given you um, a summary of that evidence in this sheet, and I hope that you might read it over and share it with anybody else who thinks that the resurrection is kind of a crazy story. I had someone here in the college a few weeks ago in the residence who, when he heard that um, I um, was a former professor here, he went on to tell me what he thought of the gospel story. And he said, it's just made up. It's just, it's just a story. And I wanted to say, buddy, it's not. But he didn't ask. He just kept talking. So I let him keep talking. Hopefully he'll find some evidence and read it. My friends, the response of the women was that they left. We have good news to share. We have good news of a risen Jesus. But don't think for a moment that the evil one is not still at work. I love the story. Well, first of all, I'll read, I'll read the, the, the last paragraph here. It's quite short. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard went into the city and proclaimed to the chief priests all that had happened. That's the same phrase that had led the centurion at the foot of the cross to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. They told them, the guards proclaimed to them. You see, there's a different proclamation here. There's a proclamation for good and there's a proclamation for ill. They told them all that had happened. What did they do? Did they pause and think, are we wrong? No. When they had met with a council of the elders, they gave a considerable amount of money to the soldiers, saying, say that his disciples came in the night and stole him while we were asleep. If you're asleep, how do you know it was the disciples who stole him? What motive would the disciples have for stealing the body? They thought it was all over. They didn't understand the resurrection. They were in no state of mind to do anything as bold. Tampering with a Roman tomb brought great. Tampering with a tomb that had been supervised under Rome uh, brought with it uh, a severe punishment, we know. Highly unlikely. 
And if the governor hears about this, we will ourselves influence him and keep you safe from retribution. Here we have side by side the message of the good news of Jesus with all of its goodness and all of its glory. And right alongside of it comes the, the same old evil, um, slander, lying, conniving, uh, saving of the personal backside, uh, greasing of the palm. My friends, that continues until today. There are two messages that are proclaimed. And let me just say to you that if you are um, in the workplace bearing testimony to Jesus, if you are taking a stand for Jesus, if you are seeing people's lives changed in one way or another through what the Holy Spirit is doing in the um, community that you're a part of or the classroom that you're a part of or the ministry that you're part of, if there's not opposition at some level, uh, that's very strange. Uh, so don't be discouraged if there is opposition. Now, the opposition might be legitimate. I mean, you might be doing some things that are wrong that you need correcting. But don't be surprised if there's trouble that comes alongside the proclamation of the gospel. Last Monday, I went around the neighborhood and posted these little Christ the King signs on the notice boards. And I was discouraged today on the way to, on the way to, to, uh, to church to notice that more than half of them have been taken down. You know, just in the course of a week. I mean, you're allowed to post things. Down they come. Down they come. Um, there's a real host of things out there. You know, somebody who's teaching yoga. Um, the guy on the college, or the guy on Harvard Street whose picture's there, who was this great guru who was uh, now known to have been a rapist. I mean, you have the goodness of God, but you have the evil one at work at the same time. I love the legendary story, I think, of, well, it must be legendary, of course. Um, I don't know where I heard it from, but it was um, in, uh, in the realm of Satan and his angels. Um, Satan hits the announcement button. We got trouble, guys. She's awake. And it was a Mary Magdalene or um, one of you who is on the move and doing kingdom business. Red alert. They're on the move, those Christians. Let's plot evil to put them down. But in the end, God wins. Do you know, my friends, that Jesus has really, really been risen from the dead? That means there's an opportunity for a living relationship with that person that comes through simple faith. You don't have to do anything. He's done it all. You simply need to receive the gift of his death and his resurrection as God's way of paving a way for you to be at peace with him. And if that's news to you this afternoon, I, there are lots of us who would love to be able to carry on that conversation after the service is over. The world is a different place. The worldview has changed with that one empty tomb and the presence of the risen Jesus on earth for 40 days after he rose from the dead. And he's still at the right hand of God doing his ministry and his work in people's lives as we can see him doing all around us. Amen.